You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is Part 7 of the Burke and Wills Expedition. Holy Cats, Part 7. I have to say, when I first contemplated covering this topic, I never imagined it would go this long. But it has been a great tale, and today we will discover the fates of the men of the Victorian Exploring Expedition, including Robert Burke and William Wills. Now, in this episode, we really have three different threads to cover. The first will be Robert Burke and the surviving members of the Golf Company, and the second will be the two different contingents led by William Bra and William Wright. These groups will quickly converge, and we will cover them together. The third thread will take us back to Melbourne, where everyone is wondering what has happened to Robert Burke. A reminder, on our website, explorerspodcast.com, you can get a map of all of this, plus a listing of all the key players in our story. I have posted much of this info in the show notes of the podcast as well. And with that, let's get going. We will start with William Wright and the relief expedition, which had reached the Bulu Lakes. The date was April 22, 1861. William Wright didn't know it, but Robert Burke was now at the Cooper's Creek Depot and William Brah was on his way south with the men who had spent the past few months at the very same depot. Wright was at the Bolu Lakes trying to determine how he was going to get to Cooper's Creek. But even before he figured that out, he had two major concerns. First, there was the health of his men. Ludwig Becker and William Purcell were sick, likely the result of scurvy. And another of the men, Charles Stone, was even worse. He had stabbing pains in his legs, seizures, and fits. Stone, by the way, was not only being afflicted by scurvy, but by syphilis. The second concern was the aboriginal people, the Yanjuwanda tribe. The locals had come to Wright's camp, friendly and courteous, as was usually the case when newcomers arrived in the area. One charismatic young man was clearly the leader, and Wright gave him a shirt and a hat as a way to gain his trust. The man, now called Mr. Shirt, was happy with the gifts. However, Mr. Shirt made it known, through sign language and gestures, that this area was his tribe's, and the white men should be leaving sooner rather than later. Well, this kind of talk was not going to fly with William Wright. The two men would get into a confrontation, and Wright would grab Mr. Shirt and shove him. Out came the rifles and revolvers, even Charles Stone, who was bedridden due to his illness, readied a pistol. The natives, who had seen what the white men's firearms could do, backed off, for the time being. So here was Wright in a land that he didn't know, with just seven men, almost half of whom were very, very sick and he lacked the ability to communicate with the locals, who, I would like to point out, he had just honked off. Not a great recipe for success. This inability to communicate with the locals was Wright's biggest issue. If he had been able to do so, he may have been able to strike some sort of arrangement with the Yandruwanda. But that was not happening, and now it was bravado and gestures that were going to rule the day. But before any confrontation happened between the Aboriginal people and the whites, it was time for scurvy to claim some lives. The first would be Charles Stone, and then, two days later, William Purcell. 
Wright's command now consisted of Dr. Herman Beckler, William Hodgkinson, John Smith, Belloc, who was a sepoy, and a very ill Ludwig Becker. Expecting trouble from the locals, Wright began to fortify his position, building a small stockade with four-foot-high walls. He also set a continuous watch so he and his men would not be surprised. And Wright was correct about the intentions of the Yanjuwanda people. He watched nervously as different bands arrived in the area. They taunted the white men, at one point even flinging a dead rat at Wright. There is no mistaking what that gesture meant. And then, on April 27th, things would come to a head. Approximately 100 natives gathered, many of them with painted faces and bodies. Mr. Shirt was one of the leaders. Armed with spears and boomerangs, the natives advanced. Wright would order them to halt, but they would not comply. Then, when they got within 50 or 60 feet of the stockade, Wright ordered everyone to fire. The volley would mostly go over the heads of the natives, but several men would be hit, including Mr. Shirt, who the whites admired for his bravery. Mr. Shirt would hobble off, injured, and the rest of the natives would scatter. An uneasy calm would fall over the camp, the men just waiting for another attack. With only a handful of men available, and the local people seething from the fight, Wright feared a massacre was at hand. He could not stay here, and going north, into the unknown, was foolhardy. Thus he elected to retreat. However, before Wright could pull up stakes, he was surprised by the arrival of William Bra and his three men on their own retreat from Cooper's Creek. Bra was shocked to see that Wright's party was in even worse shape than his own. For Wright, this is just what he needed. Now, with the Gulf Company supposedly not coming to the supply depot, he could pull back without feeling as if he had abandoned Burke. As for William Bra, the joy of finding Wright and his men was tempered by the discovery that Ludwig Becker, a fellow German, was near death. Bra would visit the naturalist, who was so weak and confused he barely recognized Bra. Becker would die later that night. He was 52 years old. A third grave would now be dug. So with the depot and relief groups combined, it was time to pull back to the south. Bra ceded command to Wright, who began a withdrawal on May 1st. However, William Bra and Thomas McDonough, another of the depot men, were disturbed. Neither man had been happy about leaving the base at Cooper's Creek. Yes, they were pretty sure Robert Burke and his men were not coming back, but they were not completely sure. I mean, what if Burke was still out there? With some good food in his system, Bra would quickly recover from his bout of scurvy. Then, on May 3rd, he told Wright he wanted to go back to Cooper's Creek, just to be safe. Wright was hesitant, but he would eventually agree. In fact, he said he would go with Bra. The two would travel light and fast, only three horses, one for each man, and a third to carry supplies they would depart that same day. With Bra as a guide, the two men would reach the supply depot on May 8th. Wright was finally at Cooper's Creek, roughly five months later than Burke had expected him. A quick glance at the camp, and Bra reported that nothing much had changed. Yes, there were signs that the locals had gone through the camp, but the message on the dig tree was unaltered, and nothing had been added to it. And the spot where the supplies were buried appeared undisturbed. Bra, who had been worried about leaving Burke without support, was relieved. All signs indicated that the golf party had not been to the depot, but we know that they had, and now they were making their way west in an attempt to reach Mount Hopeless. If Brown Wright had dug up the buried chest, they would have found a letter from Burke explaining all of this. So why didn't Brown dig up the supply chest? Well, it was obvious to Brown that no one else had been there. Surely if Burke or any of the golf party had reached the camp, they would have done something to indicate their passage. But there was nothing, so Bra and Wright decided to save time and energy. They would spend only 15 minutes at the site before starting their journey back south. Oh my, can you believe this is happening? 
If you remember our last episode, Burke, Wills, and King had indeed dug up the chest. Well, as you will see shortly, they reburied it with a new note, stating that they were heading west toward Mount Hopeless. But they had not left any sort of marking to indicate that they had been at the depot. Not even a date or a notch or initials. Nothing. In fact, they had taken pains to make sure everything looked just like they had found it. It is another tragic moment. Wright and Bra were literally standing on top of Burke's letter. A letter that would have revealed to the men where to find the golf party survivors. But they had not dug it up because, hey, there's no way Burke digs up the camel chest and doesn't leave some sort of message, right? Again, it is a tragedy. Burke should have done something, left some mark, showing that they had been there. Anything. But there was nothing. Thus, Bra and Wright would depart, confident that Burke had never reached the supply depot. Wright and Bra would head back south, catching up to the expedition at Corleatu Creek five days later. Here, they would prepare the men for a march back to Menendee. The trek back across the Australian outback was an agonizing and slow one. The expedition was more of a hospital train than a caravan. William Patton was barely alive, and Thomas McDonough was now unconscious. Even one of the sepoys had difficulty traveling. The lack of water would make it a terrible march for the men and animals. But William Wright would eventually lead the men into Menendee on June 19, 1861. Along the way, William Patton, the Irish blacksmith, would succumb to his illness. He was the fourth death in the expedition, not counting Charlie Gray. All had died of scurvy. William Wright, as an officer in the Victorian Exploring Expedition, was now done, and he disbanded the men. The next day he would depart on a steamer to Adelaide to rejoin his family. The rest of the men would take some time to rest and recuperate. But one of the men of the expedition, William Bra, was not done. A few days later, on June 22nd, the dutiful young man would set out for Melbourne, set on delivering news of the expedition to the Royal Society and the world. And with William Bra heading south, let us catch up with Robert Burke, William Wills, and John King. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It was April 21st, 1861. Robert Burke, William Wills, and John King sat at the depot at Cooper's Creek, no doubt lamenting their situation. They had just missed William Bra by mere hours. The men couldn't believe Bra had departed, especially after reading his letter, which said that the men, outside of William Patton, were in good condition. Well, in all honesty, Bra had oversold the health of his men. Patton wasn't just sick, but really sick. He had not walked in almost three weeks. And Bra and Thomas McDonough were showing signs of scurvy as well. It was only a matter of time before they were laid up by the disease. Staying at Cooper's Creek had not really been an option for them, even if Burke and Wills questioned their departure. For his next step, Burke could have struck out for Menendee. He had a good supply of food, 40 days of it, but the 400-mile trek south would be lacking in water. And even more important, Burke knew that he and his men, and his camels, were in such terrible shape they would not be able to travel for more than four or five miles in a day. 
Such a pace was not going to allow them to get to Menendee within 40 days. I cannot stress how bad of a shape the men were in. They were exhausted and suffering from malnutrition and vitamin deficiencies. Every day was a struggle. William Wills would write in his diary that getting up off the ground or even taking a few steps was a painful endeavor. And the two surviving camels were in terrible shape as well. They were so bad they could barely carry 40 or 50 pounds each. Six months earlier, they had been hauling ten times that. This meant that the men could not ride and would have to walk. Burke, Wills, and King would rest for a day at Cooper's Creek before setting out again on April 23rd. Before leaving, they placed all their journals into the camel box and reburied it at the dig tree. Burke also included a letter expressing his disappointment in Bra for not staying at the depot and explaining he was going to strike out for Mount Hopeless. He admitted that the camels were in bad shape and expected progress to be very slow. The men would then cover the camel chest and disguise its location, just like Bra had done. Next, King asked if they should put some sort of mark or message on the dig tree. But Burke said it wasn't necessary. If anyone came to the camp, they'd figure it out and uncover the chest and get the message. What could go wrong with that? Well, as you have seen, a whole heck of a lot. I have to say, it's mind-boggling that Burke didn't do something. Etch his initials or the date into the tree, anything, just to cover all of his bases. But he did nothing, and Braun Wright would not find his letter. So, Burke, Wills, and King would depart just after 9 in the morning on April 23rd, heading west down Cooper's Creek. The plan was to journey to Mount Hopeless, a cattle station about 150 miles away. The plan called for heading west along Cooper's Creek, and then following Sturzaletsky Creek to the south, and from there you head toward Mount Hopeless. Augustus Gregory had done this exact thing back in 1858. Burke hoped to follow in Gregory's footsteps. He felt that the distance was more manageable than the journey to Menendee. And that leads us to a huge question. Where is Sturzaletsky Creek? And the answer is, the men didn't know, and it's not like there were signs for them to follow. They only knew that it went south off of Cooper's Creek and was fairly substantial in size. Now, two things I want to point out about this decision. The first thing is painfully obvious, and that is Burke, by going west, took away any chance to encounter a relief party heading toward the supply depot. If they had gone south, they very well may have run into Bra and Wright. And the second thing surrounds the supplies. Burke was worried, rightfully so, about the supplies being enough to get the men to Menendee. 400 miles was a long way, after all. However, if you think back to one of the earlier episodes, Burke had actually deposited a bunch of provisions in a hidden cache at the Torowoto Swamp, which was about halfway to Menendee. While there was a chance these supplies were gone, Burke knew that they could have, potentially, offered him and his men some much-needed provisions. But Burke elected to go westward along Cooper's Creek, aiming for Mount Hopeless. By the way, one of the advantages to this decision was that the men would not have to worry about water, at least while they were along the creeks. It was one of the reasons that Burke elected to take this route. So as the men marched down Cooper's, they almost immediately came across some natives, and Burke ordered his men to avoid them. However, dodging the locals was not that easy. Cooper's Creek was teeming with activity at this time of year, and the native peoples were fascinated by Burke and his comrades, as most of them had never seen a white man. The natives would give the VEE fish and seed cakes as gifts. Burke had little to trade except for some matches and sugar. But it was enough, and the fresh food from the natives, as well as the cache of supplies at the depot, did wonders for the men's health. The ache in their legs dissipated, and some of their strength returned. And in an interesting turn, William Wills took note of how well the locals had adapted to their environment. Six months before, he had been saying how lowly and savage the aboriginal people were. 
Yet now, here he was admiring them for how healthy and clever they were. On April 28th, the expedition would suffer a major loss when one of the camels slid down a muddy bank and became stuck in the creek. The camel was too weak to get itself out, and Burke, Wills, and King could not help it. The animal would remain stuck for an entire day before the poor creature would be killed for food. Burke now had only one camel left, and that one was growing weaker by the day. They were forced to lighten its load for fear that it would simply lay down and never get up again. So Burke, Wills, and King continued on, looking for Sturzeletsky Creek and the way toward Mount Hopeless. The problem was that the creeks all looked the same. Thus, the men would explore the various offshoots to the south, only to be forced to retreat back to Cooper's Creek when the water dried up or turned in the wrong direction. To conserve energy, the men would even take turns on short solo reconnaissance missions. But it was to no avail. Each of the side creeks they explored was a dead end. This would go on for a couple of weeks, the expedition's food supply rapidly diminishing. Then on May 6th, the last of the camels would collapse. This was a blow to Burke. He knew that, at some point, he would likely have to strike out from the creek and head into the desert and make for Mount Hopeless. Without knowing where they would find water, he needed a camel to carry it. But now, that was not going to happen. The last camel was finished. It would be shot by King, and the men would spend the day jerking the meat. Things would grow more and more desperate over the next week, and on May 15th, the men would take one last stab at reaching Mount Hopeless. They would set off, each carrying a blanket, some dried meat, a little flour, and a container of water. On May 17th, there would be two developments. The first was the discovery of a creek that showed promise. Maybe they had found Sturzeletsky Creek, the elusive route toward Mount Hopeless. The men would follow it. The second thing that happened was the men found out where the native people got the seeds to make nardu bread. As we have discussed before, nardu is a fern that grows in the area. The seeds are ground up into flour, mixed with water, and then cooked in the ashes of a fire. This makes a seed cake. In short order, nardu would become the main staple of the men's diets. However, they would generally just grind it into flour and eat it raw. While this would sustain the men, it has some side effects that we will discuss later. So, the promising creek that Burke and his men had followed? Well, it turned into a series of dried up creek beds and led into the desert. Thus, with no other option, the men would march south into nothingness. Eventually, they would come to the top of a high sand dune, and from there, they could see a distance of about 10 miles to the south. And the only thing before them was the desert. There was no green, no water, just an endless, desolate landscape. It is important to remember that water is an unpredictable element in the Australian outback. Where it flows, how far it flows, if it flows, changes from year to year. What had been found by Augustus Gregory in 1858 did not necessarily mean it would be found in 1861. It had been foolish for Burke to believe such a thing. No matter, the three disheartened men would turn around and retrace their steps. Burke's Mount Hopeless gamble had backfired horribly. In four weeks, he and his men had managed to cover only 45 miles. The camels were gone, and most of their food as well. The VEE would stagger back to Cooper's Creek, which they would reach on May 21st. Now, the men had to find the Aboriginal people and hope to survive on their generosity. Back at the river, Burke, Wills, and King would struggle to simply survive. They would collect nardu seeds and pound them into flour, but it was clear they needed more. And then, a few days later, the men thought they heard something. Had that been a gunshot? They were stunned. Had someone found the note they had left at the depot and come looking for them? The men were weak, and Burke asked Wills, who was the healthiest of the group at this time, to head to the supply depot and see if anyone had been there. Wills would agree and set off. So what had the men heard? Well, it wasn't a gunshot. 
it was likely a natural phenomenon, such as a lightning crack, or the rocks in the area were known to split open in intense heat and cause a cracking sound. Still, Wills did not know this, and he headed east toward the supply depot. He would reach there on May 27th and find nothing had changed. This despite the fact that William Bra and William Wright had visited the camp a few weeks earlier. Wills was disappointed, writing in his journal, quote, No traces of anyone except blacks having been here since we left, end quote. He would then dig up the camel chest and update the note that had been left there the previous month and deposit his recent journals. He would then head up Cooper's Creek to rejoin Burke and King. Now, both to and from the depot, Wills was greatly aided by the local people. They welcomed him and gave him food and even let him sleep with them in their camps. The problem was that the Aboriginal people frequently moved, and thus Wills would have to move with them if he was to enjoy their hospitality. But Wills came to understand that they offered a unique opportunity, one where he and his comrades could actually survive. The key was that they would need to find a friendly group of natives and be able to keep up with them as they moved along the creek. So, with Wills off at the supply depot, Burke and King would be left to fend for themselves along Cooper's Creek. At first, things were fine, as the local people brought them fish and nardoo cakes. But then Burke would catch one of the natives trying to steal a piece of oil cloth. He would fire his revolver to scare the man away. After King had a similar encounter, Burke would chase off any of the locals who tried to interact with them. At the core of this was the fact that Burke did not trust the Aboriginal people, and he did not want to get too friendly with them. He probably saw them as savages, who would turn on them at the first opportunity. The maddening thing was that Burke needed the help of these people if he wanted to survive. They were bringing him food. He couldn't expect them to keep doing so if he treated them badly, which is what he did. In the end, the local natives, even after repeated overtures, were driven away by Burke's threats. This meant no more fish and no more nardu. And then, shortly before Wills returned to the camp, disaster would strike. The two men had been sleeping in a gunye, also called a whirly. This is a temporary shelter built out of sticks and bark. They were common throughout the continent, and the natives would use them, move on, and leave them for the next group that would come to that location. Burke and Wills would build their cooking fire too close to the gunye, and a gust of wind threw some sparks, which would set the small shelter aflame. In the dry climate, the gunye quickly burned to the ground. Inside were the men's possessions, including bags, bedding, and food. Only a rifle and revolver were saved, as they were not inside. Everything was gone. When Wills returned, he was upset at the turn of events. One report from the local Yandruwanda people, taken several years later, said that Wills and Burke quarreled over the incident, and things got so heated, Burke would strike Wills. Now, we do not know if this is true, but in the end, it really doesn't affect our story. But if it is true, it demonstrates how close the men were to cracking, both physically and mentally. No matter, the three men had lost virtually everything that they had possessed. They had no food and no real hope. Despite the poor relationship between the white men and the Yandruwanda, Wills reached out to the native people in hopes of regaining their trust. It would work at least for a couple of days, but then the Yandruwanda would move on and the whites simply could not stay up with them. The month of June would roll around and things became more desperate. By the middle of the month, the men's health was rapidly deteriorating, Wills especially so. Their lack of strength vexed the men. They were collecting and eating quite a bit of nardu, yet they weren't getting any better. The answer probably lies in how the men were preparing the nardu. They would ground up the seeds and eat the raw flour, and this may have been their problem. One theory is that raw nardu has the enzyme thiaminase, which blocks the absorption of vitamin B. Assuming Burke, Wills, and King were suffering from beriberi, which is a lack of vitamin B, well, that would not be good. 
It meant they were essentially poisoning themselves as they ate the nardu. The lack of vitamin B would have caused all sorts of health issues, including weight loss, constipation, and weakness, symptoms the men were all suffering from. And we can't forget that the men had been underfed for months. They would have been severely malnourished. When the body isn't getting enough food, so many things can go wrong. This combination of beriberi and malnutrition would have led to severe exhaustion. The men were wasting away. On June 20, 1861, William Wills could barely move. He estimated that he only had 10 to 15 days left to live, and that was being optimistic. Also, the men would have to face a new foe, the cold. Due to losing so much of their body mass, all three of the men were suffering from exposure in the cool nights, and with no blankets or coats, it only made things worse. On June 26th, Wills was unable to stand. He recorded his pulse, which was at 48 beats per minute. A normal resting pulse for a male adult is 60 to 100 beats per minute. Wills understood that he was going to die soon. Also, he knew that by sitting around and watching him die, his comrades were diminishing their own chances of survival. Thus, Wills would suggest that Burke and King leave him and go and search out the aboriginal people up the creek. Without their help, they would all die. Burke hated this idea, but he would ultimately agree. The plan was for Burke and King to head up the river and look for the natives to help them. With luck, they could also find someone who could come and save Wills. But that last part was just a pipe dream. They all knew that Wills was beyond saving. So, as Wills hovered near death, he wrote about his experience. He was very scientific and clinical in his approach. Also, he would write a long letter to his father, which he would give to Burke, along with his watch, for safekeeping. When done, Wills read the letter to his comrades to demonstrate that he was saying nothing detrimental about either of them. In the letter, however, he does demonstrate his bitterness toward the depot party for leaving, as well as the exploration committee. Still, the young man was positive to the end. His last line read, quote, My spirits are excellent. End quote. Burke was shattered by all of this. He had tremendous difficulty leaving the young man who he had come to trust and care for, but there was nothing left for them to do. They would leave some nardu, water, and firewood, all within reach of Wills, and depart. It is estimated that William Wills died on or around June 28th, but the exact date is not known. Because of his lack of energy, he likely died in his sleep. He was 27 years old. Robert Burke and John King would head up Cooper's Creek, but their progress was terribly slow, as Burke was dizzy and suffering from severe back and leg pains. The next day, they would only cover two miles before Burke's body gave up on him. The big athletic Irishman could not continue. King would prop his commander up against a big kulaba tree next to a water hole. It was here that Burke composed a letter to his sister, Hesse. In the letter, Burke canceled the will he had written the previous August, the one where he left everything to teenage actress Julia Matthews. Also, he penned a note to the committee, praising King, saying, quote, King has behaved nobly, and I hope he will be properly cared for. End quote. Burke then gave King his notebook and pocket watch, and he asked them to be delivered to Sir William Staywell of the Royal Society of Victoria. He stressed these items should be given to no one else. Burke also entrusted William Wills's letter and watch to King. He then told King, quote, I am convinced that I cannot last many hours, end quote. Robert Burke would cling to life throughout the night and into the next morning. His last coherent words to King were, quote, I hope you will remain with me until I am quite dead. It is a comfort to know that someone is by. But when I am dead, it is my wish that you leave me unburied as I lie, end quote. At eight o'clock in the morning, all signs of life would leave Burke. King would check the body and find no pulse. Robert O'Hara Burke was dead. 
the leader of the Victorian exploring expedition, had died at the age of 40. John King fell to the ground and wept at the passing of his commander. The young Irishman would linger with Burke's body for a few hours, but he would not bury it as requested. Eventually, John King knew that he would have to move on. He had to find the local natives if he had any chance of surviving. It was a daunting task, of which King would say, quote, I felt very lonely, end quote. And off went John King, the last surviving member of the VEE's golf party. And that, my friends, is the final fate of Robert O'Hara Burke and William Wills, the two leaders of the Victorian Exploring Expedition. If you didn't know this story before we started, I don't think the fate of the two men is a shock to anyone. However, before we do any postscript on our story, let's remember we are not done. Mr. John King is still alive, and we will continue his story in our next episode. However, before I leave you today, I want to jump back to Melbourne, where we will introduce a new player in our story, one who will be important in our next episode. So that takes us back to Melbourne. Regarding Burke and his men, things had died down after William Wright received funding and his commission to get the supplies from Menendee to Cooper's Creek back at the end of December of 1860. But as February turned to March, there were more and more rumblings with a very simple message. Where was Robert Burke? The most vocal person asking this question was Dr. William Wills, the father of the expedition's second-in-command. Dr. Wills would press the Exploration Committee for answers. He encouraged relief efforts to be organized now, not later. But the powers that be were not concerned, at least not publicly. They knew the journey across the continent would take time and voiced their confidence that Burke would turn up sooner or later. However, as the weeks would turn to months, the calls for some action began to grow. The newspapers, private citizens, and government officials began to make a call for some sort of search to be conducted. Well, by early June, the Exploration Committee finally had to admit that there was cause for concern. Thus, on June 7th, the committee would go about organizing a search party to head north. The suggestion of hiring George Landells, the VEE's former camel master, was quickly dismissed, and soon the committee set their eyes on Alfred Howitt, a 31-year-old English explorer and naturalist. Howitt was an interesting man, as he not only was an experienced bushman, but also a highly educated scientist. He was, to be honest, the exact kind of man the Exploration Committee should have hired the year before. Unfortunately, Howitt had been employed at the time and was unable to put his name forward to lead the expedition. No matter, Howitt would be charged with taking a small group to Swan Hill, buy some horses, and head to Menendee, and on to Cooper's Creek if necessary, and determine the fate of Burke and his men. While Howitt prepared to depart for the north, the mood regarding Burke grew more and more somber with each passing day. The colony of Victoria would take its own action, announcing the HMS Victoria would sail for the Gulf of Carpentaria, just in case Burke was hanging out on the beach waiting to be rescued. Howitt would depart Melbourne on June 26th. His preparations had been thorough and meticulous. He planned to move fast and light, only himself and three experienced bushmen as comrades. Howitt's plan was to take a train to Bendigo and then a coach to Swan Hill. However, three days out of Melbourne, at a coaching inn called the Durham Ox, a young German man would come looking for Howitt. The man was William Bra. And thus, the story unfolded, much to Howitt's horror. He quickly realized that Burke was in a terrible situation, and a simple search party to find out what was going on was inadequate. A full-blown rescue operation was in order. Howitt headed straight to the telegraph office to wire the committee the news, and then with Bra rushed back to Melbourne. As Howitt and Bra headed south, word swept through the city and the nation about the fate of the expedition. Four men were dead. Burke was missing and probably dead as well. 
Howitt and Brough would reach Melbourne, and the Exploration Committee determined Howitt should go back to the north. However, the committee would delay official authorization until July 4th. To his credit, William Brough offered to accompany Howitt, an offer that was quickly accepted. Brough's experience and knowledge of the area would be invaluable. And now, the frenzy that followed regarding the disaster that had befallen the supply column set all of Australia into action. The Queensland government announced its own expedition, and in South Australia, the rival of Victoria, the government announced £1,200 would be allotted for their own rescue expedition. Now, there were no less than four rescue parties being organized to go searching for Burke and his lost men. And that is where I'm going to leave things for today. Burke and Wills were dead, along with five others, victims of the harsh Australian outback. But there is still one man left out there, John King. He was alone, weak and sick, all of his comrades now dead. It did not look good. So next time, we will find out the fate of Mr. King and review the aftermath of the Victorian Exploring Expedition. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time for the conclusion of the Burke and Wills Expedition.